0: And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm really grateful to you, uh, have this opportunity to be involved in the important work of Hospice Alliance. And that is work that is going on in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis, uh, albeit... Uh, in different ways and under very different circumstances than would normally be the case. First of all, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the program, Rita Hagen, who is executive director of Hospice Alliance. And joining us for the first time is Jennifer Sitkowski, who is bereavement coordinator for Hospice Alliance. And uh, they're going to be telling us not only about the, the, the good work that Hospice Alliance has always done and continues to do, and way in which they are continuing to offer their services during this time of social distancing. Uh, Rita Hagen, Jennifer Sitkowski, we welcome both of you to the morning show.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Glad
0: to be thanks. here. Good to have you, you here. Uh, Rita, before we get into uh, a, a conversation really focused on the present moment, uh, for anybody who is not directly acquainted with hospice alliance might be good to get a couple of of general uh, points uh, out of the way and even before talking about hospice alliance maybe just remind our listeners about what the term hospice represents and what hospice care is really all about
1: Um, hospice is really a philosophy of care um, about helping obviously the patient and the family meet their goals of life or end of life, I should say, and, and bring them to a peaceful end of life and, and do the things that are important to them. And that can be done in many, many ways. And, uh, it's a team approach. You have a nurse, a CNA, you have a social worker, um, you have a very interdisciplinary approach to meeting the end of life goals for someone. And then after the person passes, Uh, That's where Jenny's role comes in, because bereavement is a huge uh, component of hospice care, and and we provide that for up to 13 months, and oftentimes beyond that um, in many ways, and Jenny will talk about that, but that's to help the family kind of move on um, from that point. Uh, Hospice is not 24-7 care, but it's really an adjunct care to assist the family with caregiving, uh, assist the facility, Uh, we like to say we provide hospice where anybody uh, wherever they call home
0: right so somebody could be at home receiving i mean literally at home yes uh, receiving hospice care they could be in a hospital they could be in a nursing home uh, in just about any environment it is possible for hospice to be a part of that
1: right and we have also um, an eight bed hospice house that we have here that's residential Um, So those are patients that live in their own private home, and oftentimes, you know, caretaking is difficult, and those burdens get tough, Um, and through the recommendation of the team and looking at the patients and the family needs, then we can move them into our hospice house where they can spend their final days.
0: Tell our listeners uh, a bit about how Hospice Alliance specifically is organized and and also uh, the scope of what you offer.
1: Um, well, it, we provide hospice care, and we have been for almost 40 years. We do that in, uh, and always have since we open our doors in Kenosha Racine and Walworth County. We go a little bit into South Milwaukee. Um, referrals can be called in directly to the organization by the patient themselves we've had, family members or uh, caretakers or their medical professionals that are part of their care. And we come out and we do a consult, we meet with the family, and then we talk about what are those end-of-life goals and wishes, what's going on that made you call us. Um, A lot of times we ask families to think about, would you be really surprised if your loved one was here in a year from now? And that's kind of a good way, because sometimes people decline slowly, things change. but then our when our, we come in and do our consult, we can answer those questions for the patient and the family and give them some direction. And sometimes people aren't always quite ready for hospice. Um, and then we have our palliative care program, which is really just another, uh, I guess, tool to help people who have a chronic illness. Um, that's, we have a nurse practitioner that will meet with the patient or family and again, helps them. And they become kind of a an additional layer also like hospices in the sense that they connect them with their uh, primary caregivers, and maybe could be a liaison, or if they see something, they could communicate that to the um, actor. the The difference between real difference between hospice and palliative care is, in palliative care, you can seek active treatment. So you could have cancer or uh, chronic lung or heart disease, but you can still be seeing all your physicians and everything. But we're just kind of trying to help control symptoms and help give you better quality of life perhaps until you're ready for that hospice
0: step. Right. We have Jennifer Sitkowski with us for the first time on the morning show. Uh, she is bereavement coordinator for Hospice Alliance. Uh, Jennifer, first of all, how long have you been with Hospice Alliance?
2: I've been with hospice for about uh, eight years now. Just oh. about eight years. Yeah. So you're yeah. not
0: the new kid on the block anymore. <laughs> just new well, to the morning show.
2: Yeah, new to, new to your show, but... Um, been, I've been here with Hospice Alliance
1: for for, a, for eight years.
0: Tell us the kind of things that drew you to want to do this kind of work. I mean, to be, first of all, just kind of part of the, the world of hospice itself, and then also uh, to do specifically the work that you do for Hospice Alliance as a bereavement coordinator.
2: Sure. Well, uh, firstly, I, um, I am a social worker by profession. And so, um, I'll tell you, I, the reason I became interested in hospice was really because uh, my father-in-law had hospice care, um, in his own home, um, when he was entering his end of life, uh, journey. And, um, you know, when we would go visit him, I, I thought that it was pretty great that, um. He was able to have uh, someone come to his house to help him take a bath um, and to help him um, take care of those personal needs uh, that can be so overwhelming for uh, spouses and children. And then also, um, you know, hospice had things in the house that he didn't have before, like the uh, oxygen uh, for a comfort measure, um, a hospital bed. Uh, those kinds of things, and I thought, you know, what a great, um, what a great program uh, to be involved in to try to make a really difficult time maybe just a little less difficult, um, and uh, it did just that. And so, um, when I was then uh, thinking about uh, going back into uh, the working field, um, I had been at home with my children for a while. Uh, I, I thought that I would uh, do that. And that, of course, is, it, it was uh, advertising in the newspaper. <laughs> so um, looking for a social worker for hospice clients. And so I did that. And um, then I was eventually hired. And um, so I did the social work role as part of the IDG core team uh, for about six years. And then the last three years the uh, bereavement section. Right.
0: And as Rita Hagen uh, just, uh, I think, mentioned uh earlier uh this is something that is i I should think as primarily uh working with the family once somebody has passed away uh is is that when your work at least primarily begins and 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 well
2: yeah primarily i you know bereavement bereavement really is offered um technically speaking it's uh it starts at admission really Mm um because the social workers are Um, And really the whole team is sort of assessing for the possible needs of bereavement all the way from the very beginning. And then um, they're able to help me and to give me information so that I can be as effective as possible for a family. Then after a family passes away, and then that's when really um, uh, it kind of becomes uh, considered that section, the the bereavement section of work then. And uh, I follow up with family and friends.
0: For those of you just joining us, we are talking with two representatives of Hospice Alliance: uh, Rita Hagen, who is uh, Executive director of Hospice Alliance, and Jennifer Sitkowski, who is uh, bereavement coordinator for the hospice uh, Alliance. So Rita Hagen, uh, maybe you could uh, take us back to whatever point in time uh, it began to be apparent that uh, this matter of COVID-19 was very likely going to impact our community and impact the work that you do and the services uh, that you provide to people. Uh, Tell us about the first conversations that occurred at Hospice Alliance around this and uh, the the first concerns that were raised in terms of how you might be able to go forward uh, given whatever was ahead.
1: I think um, our earliest conversations began really right around the beginning of March. Uh, we had all obviously been aware of it, but that's when really it kind of came to our forefront that this is something that was going to hit us and had started, you know what I mean, already in other areas like Milwaukee. And so we began at that time uh, really keeping an eye on what was happening and where to go and what were our resources going to be and where do we need to listen. And I would say officially it was that around the 10th of March that we began our incident command and put ourselves in emergency preparedness mode to set up to be able to handle what was going to be going on. Uh, We were listening to uh, all sorts of webinars from the state and our local uh, health departments as well as our national organizations on what to do. We did an inventory of our PPE and we looked at what we could do to make sure that um, we could continue seeing our patients, keeping our staff safe, keeping patients safe, keeping families safe. Um, I think by the end of that week, we were already screening. We had uh, developed a form, a JOT form that was sent out electronically. So our staff has to, every day before they start their shift, they must uh, answer the questions on this JOT form that are the pretty typical They have to take their temp. Do you have a temp? Do you have any respiratory symptoms? You know that. If any of those yeses, that goes right to our infection control nurse. That person cannot work until we review and clear if they can or not. We also screen our patients every day before visits. We've encouraged our families and given them the materials to keep in their home, uh, to keep track of the visitors into their home, to limit those visitors as much as possible. Um, We do that in our hospice house. And that has been our routine since probably March 11th. We've been doing that. Uh, We continue really to review that plan. I think the one constant we've had is that it's changing. Every single day it's evolving. What's required? What is recommended? Um, I think our community as a whole, uh, the Kenosha County Health Department has been simply amazing. Um, I've been in touch with Racine's Health Department as well. Uh, it's just hard to sit in on all of those. So at least if you're following, you know what I mean? One set of standards, you know that you're you're on top of things, but they are really both um, trying to keep all of this um, under control. And, um, you know, I think you see that in our numbers and, and and what's going on. So, you know, it's just been difficult. Getting PPE is difficult. We kept some, but we didn't need a lot. You know, we maybe had two isolation patients a year at the most. And now this is every single patient's an isolation patient. And uh, just like everyone else, you know, we're trying to get those supplies and and we've been very fortunate. You know, sadly, you pay more for them, but we're getting them and we keep our uh, inventory up. Um, And we have our CNAs going into facilities still that are allowed. Uh, There were some recommendations through Kenosha County that they only wanted one CNA per facility and that again was they wanted to avoid like cross-contamination and it made it sense but we had to sit and figure that one out and I have an amazing team here and uh, in the course of several hours we were able to figure out not just in Kenosha County but we made sure that our CNAs across the board where we serve population only went into one facility and that required CNAs who don't always do field work, to dust off their CNAs. Um, They kept up their license, but they maybe work in our supply department or they work in our hospice house and they went out and helped us. Um, Same with nurses. We tried to limit the amount of nurse uh, visits into facilities. So we have um, nurses that don't necessarily do daily patient care, took on some patient loads so that we could continue to make visits to our patients um, and be in touch with the family. I think it was by the end of the second week, we had the majority of our staff home working from home um, to keep them as safe as possible. There's about five of us here in the building that absolutely had to be here. So um, it's, it's been quite the journey. I look forward to it being over, but uh, I don't see that too, too soon. But uh, we kind of set up, when they announced the end of April as stay at home, we all met uh, as leadership and we thought, let's just plan to do this till the end of May. Because then we could you know plan out our PPE further and be pleasantly surprised if we didn't need it. so I'm grateful that you know we really did had that vision and looked forward more so that's kind of where we're at um, I have you know you hear so much I mean there's so many this this is something that there's not a single person in this world that this has not touched you know whether it's in disappointments in life of canceled major events or illness, or separation from your loved ones. Um, You know, all of us in healthcare, but I I gotta tell you, my team is pretty amazing. And I think the one thing about hospice um, that people don't really think about is, you know, our staff is very independent. They don't have a whole team of nurses with them. They don't have a whole other three CNAs somewhere to help them. They independently by themselves are going into homes, facing their own fears, but making sure they're doing what's right for the patient. That's pretty amazing.
0: Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Uh, as this first, as the situation first uh, emerged or erupted, however you want to say it, um, was it always a given that Hospice Alliance would be cons- would be considered uh, an essential operation that in no way would be curtailed or, or 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 shut down, or or did you have any concerns about that 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 designation might might not in fact be granted and did you have some sense of relief that in fact uh, hospice care is rightly regarded as an essential uh, service that must go on
1: yeah honestly I never I never did and maybe because I believe so much in hospice care and that's important so that I really never thought that anyone would tell us we couldn't provide hospice care and I'm grateful that that's not what it is now we've had some facilities who don't want us to come in and we're a collaboration and we work with them and we will respect that Uh, when we can't do that. We are, we've done telehealth visits. We, um, you know, have means to be able to do face-to-face our social workers, our chaplains, they're doing majority of their visits that way. Uh, Our nurses are when they can, um, because, I mean, we understand this is a new thing for all of us. And so we're really, all of us are just kind of learning as we go. But, uh, no, I never, to answer your question, I, I never thought that. I always believed this hospice is essential to give people um, an excellent end of life. And so I'm grateful that others feel that way too.
0: Right. Um, you've already partially answered this question you were talking about at, at one point uh, when requirements changed. I mean, that that was one of the challenges of this situation. And I was going to ask you uh whose requirements, I mean, at at what point would something come down to you, which is now we have this new requirement that we have to sort of figure out how to implement. Uh, uh, Who or what would be issuing those kind of requirements? And maybe can you give us an example of such a requirement?
1: Um, Well, it comes at, you know, many levels and it's the legalities of, okay, this is a federal thing. Okay. Well, the state says you're safer at home. What does that mean for us? And then you've got your counties that then control what happens within their counties so i will use the example of we practice in both kenosha racine county as i said earlier and um, we had kenosha county when they were looking at it to address it they felt the way to keep people the safest because remember in an environment like an assisted living it's it's communal living you have your own bedroom space or whatever but you're you're going out that's the beauty of it when you're older you have all these activities and you have all these other people to socialize with so when when you're living like that that also is then can be a risk for things to spread because people are all together just like large crowds it's the same thing if you can't have 10 or more in your home you certainly can't have that in the So Kenosha County decided that they wanted you to not work in any other facility and only in one facility. And Racine didn't make that choice because they felt this, but they made the choice of everyone who goes in a facility must work, wear full PPE. And they felt if everyone did that, that would accomplish the same thing. Plus then they kept patients in their rooms and they don't you know, eat in the dining room and all those. So we practice in both communities but we decided to follow the stricter of the two because we thought that was the right thing to do. And certainly it was easier for our staff than to have a rule here and a rule there. And you you couldn't bring someone from Racine to work in Kenosha anyway. So that would be one example. Um, We are all, my director of clinical services, our infection control, I mean, human resource, every day we're looking at the CDC websites, the state websites, the local ones to make sure that we're not missing anything and staying up on what is the you know, latest best practice for this.
0: Have any of your people been working with anybody directly suffering from COVID-19?
1: There are positive cases that have been in some of our facilities. So um, we, fortunately, none of our actual patients that we are helping with cares for have. But there are some facilities that have had them, yes, and in all the communities,
0: actually. We're speaking with Rita Hagen, Executive Director of Hospice Alliance, and also with us is Jennifer Sitkowski, who is Bereavement Coordinator uh, for Hospice Alliance, and we are uh, talking with them about. How Hospice Alliance is carrying on with their very important work, uh, even in the midst of the COVID nineteen crisis, and uh, finding ways to continue to offer uh, all that they all that they do. Uh, before we get uh, back to Jennifer Rita Hagen, maybe you could say a word about some of the choices that uh, end up being made in terms of some of what you offer and those situations in which something really needs to be offered in person in the room where the patient is versus other offerings of hospice that uh, that are possible to be offered and maybe in certain circumstances even preferable to be offered in more of a virtual format. Maybe you could help us understand those kind of distinctions and and probably some some difficult choices that maybe sometimes have to be made regarding that. Yeah, I
1: think, I mean, we've continued to admit patients, right? From the very beginning and continue through today because um, we believe uh, again that people need that and now probably more than ever I guess I'll use that same term essential because that's the word that's used so much what's essential who's essential those essential in-person visits that we have to do are that very first admission uh, assessment because the nurse has to be there to do a physical assessment on the patient Beyond that, we could do virtual visits and we are doing virtual visits um, whenever we can, but there are just times where people need you there and then you know the nurse is using her better judgment on how to you know, to do that. We have really set back, I think I said earlier, the social work and our chaplain visits. Uh, there's a requirement um, in hospice for a face-to-face where a physician has to go into a face-to-face exam. So on admission, that face-to-face must be done. But once they're admitted and then it's re-certed every 60 to 90 days after that, those can be done virtually. Uh, we have a music therapist and she, in the beginning was do some visits for families that really wanted her there. And now she's been working um, and we've done some YouTube videos and she is coming up with all kinds of ways to be able to bring music, making tapes to give to the family, to play music in their home, uh, Jenny can talk about it, but even herself, because she did a lot of face-to-face, one-on-one supports and trying to, you know, keep that contact with families. We started doing Zoom, so that's an option for us if we needed to do that, uh, you know, with a a group of some sort. And uh, we're just every day looking at ways that we can, you know, help families keep in touch. That's kind of what our uh, social work and spiritual care department is now, is trying to help families stay in touch with their loved ones that are in facilities
0: where there's visit restrictions. Right. I hope you won't understand the, the uh, intention of this question. I am curious uh, if there has been much in the way of difference of opinion about some of these really vexing questions about the best way to proceed, the best way to uh, offer uh, your services under these really extraordinary circumstances. Uh, I guess. I guess my question is is just: have have the answers to these difficult questions come in a sense fairly easily? And in terms of you know everybody really with their oars in the water, rowing in the same direction. I mean, seeing it in the in the same way, or or have there been some kind of honest differences of opinion in terms of what what is? best for your patients and best for your staff and so on I'm just curious about that
1: um i mean i think i'm gonna preface it by saying that everyone is making their decisions on what they truly believe the best way to keep the people they're responsible for safe i mean really in a in a very new experience for all of us in a very unknown times because we've not been through this before but there, there is a difference of opinion and there's times where we've not been allowed admission and I need to, and then I'll be the one to call and I'll, you know, quote the regs if I have to or give, uh, there were like, say orders that came from the state or whatever. And we'll discuss it and we'll come to some uh, decision, but, you know, the facilities, that's their home and they ultimately are in charge of that. And so we do our best. Um, to keep our, you know, meet our patients' needs. But ultimately, if we're not allowed into a facility, then we do our very best to figure out another way to be able to stay in contact with that patient. Very okay.
0: good. Jennifer Zitkowski uh, again, you are Bereavement Coordinator for Hospice Alliance. So the work that you do for Hospice Alliance, uh, although obviously closely related to a lot of what we've been talking about with Rita Hagen. Uh, is is also its its own experience, its own uh, important offering in in all of this. First of all, before we even talk about what this has been like under COVID, maybe you could say a little more about the kind of work that you do as bereavement coordinator, the kind of things that are most significant, and then we'll talk about the difference uh, in in how that's being offered now versus pre COVID nineteen.
2: Sure. Well, typically um you know bereavement services kind of consist of a lot of support uh in the way of phone calls uh visits uh one on one visits as well as group support that we uh hold here at the office um, also, you know we provide a lot of education too surrounding grief because it has um it's very messy <laughs> so we try to uh, provide some um, provide some different theories and provide comfort and and provide some different ways for people to manage and to use their coping skills through these uh, times that are you know grieving is just such a difficult and brutal process for so many people even without uh, the situation that we're in right now so, uh, we try to sort of normalize that for people and uh, validate their feelings and and let them know that it's very very normal um, under the best circumstances. Hmm. Uh, yeah,
0: one of the questions that comes to mind when it <laughs> involving bereavement that I think would be very interesting to explore with you is that um, Hospice Alliance is not aligned with any specific religious practice of of, of any kind Um, but of course I'm sure you work with people who have religious beliefs or one kind of or another and and in many cases I think it, it, it varies from religion to religion but certainly there are people who hold religious views that are very much tied up in what bereavement is like and whether or not one has a belief that there is this Uh, new life awaiting the person who is about to die or who has died and so on um, versus someone who is not part of that world at all and holds no beliefs of that kind whatsoever. Um, I should think that that's a little bit of a complication uh, for somebody like you uh, working with uh, a wide array of people who probably represent a wide array of beliefs and ideas about what death is. Um, can you just say a word about uh, just how complicated, in fact, that challenge is for you? Um, what obligation what, sure. what does that represent for you and, and 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 others who do what you do?
2: Sure. Well, it's. I, I think one of the most important things to remember too is as a as a social worker, um, it is you know we practice based on uh, finding a person where they're at. Uh, We go to them. uh, And so whatever their belief system is, is what we honor. And uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, you personally have to agree uh, or that I have to personally agree with what they're doing, but that's not the point. Uh, The point is to um, assist in whatever appropriate ways uh, we can use to help comfort and provide support. And that truly is such an individual process and such an individual belief system for each person. I don't know um, that it is complicated for people themselves all the time. I think sometimes, sometimes what we look at as being potentially complicated is actually just um, something to look at as a difference. And a difference doesn't necessarily mean that it's right or wrong. It just means that it's something else to explore. So um, I find it really, it's always just been a real education for me, to be honest with you. Um, Because there's so much to learn from every point of view. Again, that doesn't mean that um, any given clinician has to hold those same points of view, but you do have to respect it and meet someone where they're at. Mm -hmm. uh, Because their goal, You know my goal is not their goal uh they may be looking for something very very different than what i might be looking for in a similar situation Hmm.
0: so would you say that you have a similar goal as far as you're concerned for everybody that you work with given the fact that people come in uh, such a wide array of, of shapes and sizes and beliefs and perspectives and so on i mean is there sort of a common core in terms of what you offer anybody and everybody with whom you work?
2: Well, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) That that in and of itself is sort of a complicated question because my goal is really their goal. Um, Mm -hmm. A plan of care for any patient or any family is supposed to be theirs. And um, so whatever their goal is, is what my goal is, Um, as long as it's, uh, you know... uh, well-meaning and has the, uh, potential to help and to have beneficence. Um, you know, we want to avoid anything that, uh, wouldn't be for the good of a person or the common good. Um, but typically, you know, when people are looking for bereavement services, really what it's about is just, um, kind of learning how to live with very uncomfortable feelings, you Mm know, uh, learning how to manage things, learning how to manage, uh, feelings that don't feel good and, uh, learning how to live with that, not necessarily getting over something or getting over, uh, the death of a loved one, but more learning how to manage it and integrate it into, uh, your life so that it's manageable. And so that, um, you can find a way to honor, honor the grief and honor your loved one, rather than put it away or put it on a shelf somewhere.
0: Right you know it 's interesting as 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 I began talking with you I, I I realized I was making a very simplistic assumption, which is what you mostly do is help people in a sense, manage grief that might otherwise overwhelm them that that they feel just this heartbreaking sorrow over having lost someone they dearly love and and you help them not, you know, vary those feelings, but in a sense, manage is a, a great word. You know, manage those those feelings and uh, make sure that 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 kind of sorrow does not overwhelm them or turn into something darker and counterproductive and even harmful to them. I, as I think about it, I realize that that's I'm sure the story of many people. But do you find yourself in in other situations where where the person is? feeling something much more complex than that and maybe more unexpected. I mean, maybe not feeling the sorrow they feel like they should be feeling or, I mean, uh, or, 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 or dealing with a mixture of emotions that might you know be buried in resentments or whatever else might have been part of a complicated relationship. Is that also part of the work that you do, helping people sort through those kind of feelings, not just... Kind of the standard sorrow that we might right? rightfully assume everybody feels yeah. in a moment like this
2: yeah so i mean you know what actually you really described it pretty well um sorrow looks very different to everyone and uh there are you know i i have the opportunity to talk to different people every day and um as a matter of fact i really miss our in-person support groups because the connections made are are beautiful among, uh, people and, um, and it's important for them to have that support, but, you know, and I, and I mean physically, you know, together and holding hands or, or, uh, hugging that kind of thing. Um, but yes, I, I, there are all different kinds of griefs out there. they none of them look the same. Uh, even people who have experienced the same type of loss, um, at the same point in their life. Uh, with very similar diagnoses or conditions or lifestyles are always going to experience grief differently because you we all have a different heart and we all have a different mind and so what goes on in there is individual to each person and so um oftentimes when people are talking about grief all these other things kind of come into play and it often you know reflects uh, the relationship that was previous to the death and sometimes that does get complicated. And it's always important to remember that um you know, here in in hospice it's uh, grief and bereavement counseling, but it's it's not therapy. We're not licensed to do that under hospice. So what we have to do is when when we kind of sense that things are getting complicated and maybe somebody can use a little bit more support or maybe um maybe I don't have the skills, um or the scope to help with something or to to talk through something with someone is we, you know, we provide referrals and we have so many therapists in this community. Um, And so that's uh, something that we do too. Uh, If something is is beyond uh, what we can really help with, then we refer out because that's the responsible thing to do. Um, Help people get pointed in the most helpful direction for them. Um, so yeah, that's that, That's very common. I mean, that's that's a lot of the meat of what I do is sort of um, helping people. Um, and, and I don't really do the work, by the way. People do the work themselves. You mm-hmm. know, it's just sort of um, uh, maybe helping helping them draw out their own skills and mm-hmm. uh, maybe teaching a few tools that they didn't know they already have.
0: That's good. So say a word about uh, what it has been like to do what you do in this time of COVID-19, this time of social distancing. You've already touched on the fact that uh, some of what you do would much more typically involve people gathered in a room, maybe gathered in a circle, and maybe holding hands and or hugging or whatever. And of course, all of that at the moment is pretty much out of reach. Uh, So tell us what your work feels like right now and the kind of experiences that you are trying to give to people, given the limitations uh, within which we're all living right now.
2: Well, I think, first of all, um, you know, we do have the capability to use Zoom and so forth. And so that is that's going to be helpful. And I'm going to uh, see what kind of interest I can uh, gather this next month in putting together a, a grief support group that way. Um, but I just think it's really important not to underestimate the importance of the telephone <laughs> most mm. people have you know most people have a telephone and um, I can tell you that my conversations with people on a daily basis have become much longer uh, much um, I guess uh, more involved and uh, deeper people are talking more and uh, and I think that's a good thing you know people's lives have slowed down tremendously and so with people at home instead of at work uh with people um you know being forced to be home and being forced to kind of be at home with their own feelings um they do have more to talk about and and they are talking and they are kind of figuring things out as they tell those narratives uh that's kind of how it looks for me um The conversations are are certainly different people you know when it comes to the nuts and bolts of what people are struggling with right now um a lot of it is the fact that uh, they cannot have a large memorial service if that's what they wanted to do um kind of reframing things uh looking at things in a different way um uh, people are people amaze me with their resilience really and people amaze me with uh, the alternate plans that they can come up with, and and uh, they can reach really deep inside of themselves and, and come up with some pretty fantastic ways to look at things. Um, it's harder for some folks than others, you know? And uh, so some people are putting things on hold until uh, things get a little bit more back to normal uh, because they may really want to have a service. For many, many people, the ritual aspect of having a service or a memorial is very, very healing to them and helps them mm-hmm to um I won't necessarily say move on but it helps them to honor the grief that they're feeling and which is which is a fantastic thing to do. So um they feel you know many people feel like they are just kind of stuck right now having to wait for those kinds of things.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess part of what you are trying to do is help them in that in this time of waiting and I suppose help them find other ways to honor their grief and experience their grief in a healthy way. Right,
2: right. hmm yeah. And if, mm-hmm, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it's, it's a lot of encouragement, I think, um, and a lot of reframing and remembering that this is temporary. Uh, you know, uh, looking back, you know, reflecting back on our own lives about what are the things that have gotten us through difficult times before can we employ those things now? Um, and and uh, and yeah, and really just holding a space for people to um, share. That's really just holding that space for people to to talk. Very sure. important. Mm-hmm.
0: Jennifer Sitkowski is a bereavement coordinator for Hospice Alliance. Rita Hagen, we'll uh, return to you, executive director of of Hospice Alliance. So it sounds like one of the decisions you made was to remain in this kind of current format, uh, through the, through the remainder of, of May. And, um, I suppose you are having conversations, uh, uh, even now about, uh, what the summer might potentially look like. Uh, and I suppose those are difficult conversations, given the fact that it's hard to know exactly what's ahead for us.
1: Yes, I, um, you know, we got, we did get a little excited this week because we thought, well, if, if it opens up somewhat um, at the end of May, as it's supposed to, you know, how would we slowly kind of bring our staff back in the building that like all of a sudden on Wednesday, the 28th, everybody, come you know what I mean? We'll start to make a plan to slowly bring people back. And um, I, I think that plan is going to have to involve is still somewhat of limited visits because no matter what, if the safer at home ends, we're a couple weeks behind Milwaukee, you know what I mean? They started before us. So, you know, kind of, our peak is still out there uh, and I'm certainly no expert, but just the looking and reading and understanding. So, you know, I think even beyond that, there, there's going to be a lot of changes. And I, I think for all of us, whether it's in hospice, or just in our everyday life is what is normal going to be? What's our new normal? What is that going to look like? Cause I, I expect it's going to be quite different getting us even through the summer. You know what I mean? Caution and travel and, you know, you can say things are open. but What does that really mean? And, and, you know, you're still going to have life out there. But we're we're going to move slowly because we want to be sure that we don't get uh, to a place, you know, when we've worked so hard to contain things and keep everyone safe. We want to really continue to follow the direction given from the CDC and our local uh, state authorities really to move forward.
0: Very good. Uh, for anybody who wants to know more about Hospice Alliance and, uh, and if there is somebody who feels like this is something that uh, they perhaps need to be accessing for themselves or for someone they love, uh, what would your advice be for them?
1: Call us. Let someone talk to you. If if you're not comfortable with someone coming in your home right now, um, we've got people that can talk to you on the phone, answer your questions. You know, I I think I have always been a big supporter of conversations about end of life, but if this period of time that we're living in right now has not made people start to talk about what's important to you and and what do you want at end of life, I, I urge people to please start to do that now. You're all home together. Probably some days staring at each other to talk about, you know, what's important about end-of-life care and what are the things you value in life, you know? Is it to be out and doing and talking and, you know, it, have those conversations, put them in writing and call us. You just have to, we're on the website. We have www.hospicealliance.org. We have a Facebook page um, and just calling two six two six five two four four zero zero and have one of our um, experts just talk with you and answer your questions. If you're concerned about a loved one or maybe even yourself. Um, and we'll take care of you.
0: Very good. Rita Hagen is the executive director of hospice Alliance. Jennifer uh, Sitkowski is the bereavement coordinator for hospice Alliance. I want to thank both of you for being part of the morning show for uh, offering really a sterling account of, of the, the good work that Hospice Alliance does you and all of the devoted members of your staff and uh, the way in which you are continuing to offer all that you do, even through the uh, complex challenges of, of COVID-19. And I want to thank you once again for being part of the morning show today. Very best wishes to you. Stay safe. Thank
1: you. Thanks for thank having you. us. We appreciate Thanks, it. Greg.